sermon over here. So um, the, one of the rules they teach you in, in public speaking is, is not to make apologies. Uh, but I'm going to start this with an apology because this isn't a public speech. This is, uh, this is opening up the Word of God. And this week has been amazing for me. Um, uh, if you were here last Sunday, you probably saw I, was, I have been overwhelmed by God's goodness. Um, and so... I jumped into this sermon prep this week with a lot of enthusiasm. And I will tell you that as I, uh, if I finished it up late because I had to cut a bit. Um, and as I read it, uh, went over it again this morning, I realized that some might hear these words and hear me accusing you. Um, and I hope that's not the case, but I think that's a possibility. Know this, that I did not go into this preparation, thinking evil of anybody or to accuse anybody. If the Holy Spirit convicts us, and he has certainly been convicting me as I prepared this, uh, then praise God for that. Praise God, because that is a display, again, of, of his, his power and his faithfulness, his provision for us. The Holy Spirit convicting us through his word. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, just two verses today, chapter or verses 12 and 13. So 1 Corinthians 10, 12 and 13. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13 has been, it's had a special part in my life. It is one of the very first verses that I memorized when I got serious as an adult about life-on-life -life discipleship. In one of my favorite Bible studies to do with people, it is the, uh, the third of those verses that... It, or those studies, uh, and it talks of the assurance of victory over temptation. And I have heard it, um, as I've read it, of Paul sort of saying the, these, uh, these things in a very reassuring way that our temptations are not unique, but a common experience uh, that all humankind has gone through, even back to the garden, that God is faithful, that he'll provide the strength and power to stand up under the temptation or, or to escape it. Um, and as I studied it more deeply this past week, I think that some of the ways in which I've heard this um, are not necessarily wrong, but incomplete. So over the past 20 years, when I recite the verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, I hear Paul speaking in this sort of gentle, encouraging, exhorting voice saying, it's okay, Pat. This isn't anything different than others have gone through and, 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 and are going through. But you can do it. God will help you. And if you can't manage, he'll get you through it. And again, I don't think that this is heretical. I don't think this is wrong to read it that way. But I think there's so much more to it. And if we want to know the more of it, or as I sought the more of it uh, this past week, I looked into uh, the context of it a little bit more deeply. And the first part of the context is the historical context. Who was Paul writing it to? And what was sort of the environment into which he was writing this? And, of course, the simple answer is he was writing it to the Corinthians. This is the first Corinthians. It's actually the second of, of four letters that Paul uh, wrote, but the, the first that we still have. And more specifically, he writes in, in the very first verse of this book to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together 
with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. But who were these people who made up the church of Corinth? For all the significant differences between our culture today and the the culture of Corinth 2,000 years ago, there are many parallels. Corinth was a, a prosperous place. It had a rich culture. It was a famous place for famous people to come and make speeches and to talk politics and philosophy. I, I read that they were obsessed with status, self-promotion, and personal rights. From a Jewish or Christian viewpoint, as with any pagan city, its inhabitants were marked by the worship of idols, sexual immorality, and greed. That probably sounds a lot like present-day New Hampshire, especially in an election year. Likewise, the church of Corinth might have felt very familiar to us. It was a small yet influential church, and they were struggling with sin in conflict. They, they weren't all clear on the essentials of their faith uh, and, and how to live that faith out in the midst of this challenging culture. Many of the problems were stemming from the fact that that culture was transforming them instead of the church transforming culture. They glorified wisdom. They blended their faith with the teachings and practices of the pagans. They overlooked and engaged in sexual uh, immorality, drunkenness, greed, and other sinful practices. Again, this should probably sound somewhat familiar to us. A look at the chapters leading up into this passage reveals another sin with which the Corinthians struggled. It's it's one for which Jesus had chastised the Pharisees. Uh, It's the sin of getting embroiled in various controversies over the various issues while neglecting the weightier matters of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So if we go back to chapter 8, we see that one of the controversies was whether or not the Corinthians should eat food that had been sacrificed to idols. This was not a trivial concern. The apostles had only a few years ago written a letter to the Gentile believers in which they specifically instructed them to abstain from that which has been sacrificed to idols. The reason for this admonition was not because that food had some sort of mystical power. Uh, that it could somehow defile those who have been washed clean by Jesus' blood. No, it was, it was to keep from causing others, particularly those who had a weak faith, from confusion over whether idolatry itself was wrong. Paul writes in, in chapter 8, Food will not condemn us to God. We are not, no worse off if we do eat and no better off if we do but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. However, some of the believers, instead of binding their own consciences uh, and lovingly building one another up, had instead let the knowledge of this doctrine puff themselves up, pridefully holding themselves up as as paragons of of virtue over those who chose to eat. And others used their freedom that Paul talks about also, to eat without considering how that freedom was leading other brothers into sin. And so Paul condemns this. He says, and so by your your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. 
It's crazy to think this, but in one way, they had actually made an idol out of the issue of whether or not to eat food sacrificed to idols. Wrapped up in all of this was the foundational sin of pride that shows up in a, in a lack of humility, a failure to consider others before themselves. These days we might not see this same controversy. Probably very few of us have ever been asked to eat food that had been sacrificed to an idol. And you probably haven't had to deal with the conundrum of whether you should have to uh, condemn those who do eat or condemn those who refuse. We don't argue about things as trivial as that today. We don't condemn those that, that don't do certain things or, or, uh, or do do certain things like wear a mask or not. We might, of course, that's not true because we do condemn people thinking that they worship the God of individual freedom because they refuse to wear a mask or that they worship the God of a, of a virus because they insist on wearing one. We still have our pride. We still have our idols, just like the church at Corinth. And Paul gives us an example, to, uh, or gives them an example to look back to as well. The Israelites, going to our chapter in chapter 10, he, he looks back all the way to the Israelites in the time of Moses. And even in the midst of their, the sovereign God who was with them, right, with a cloud by day, a, a pillar of fire by night, they consistently chose to turn to idols. Paul warns the, uh, the Corinthians, Corinthians that they are on the same path. And then as we get to chapter or to verse 12, at the beginning of our text today, he warns, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Beware. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And the way he lays his trap is through temptation, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. And yet, with this rebuke, Paul also presents hope. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let, let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Jesus had said that temptations are sure to come and even that they are necessary for us, for our good and for his glory. They are as common for us today as they were 2,000 years ago for the Corinthians and thousands of years before that for the Israelites. But there is hope. Because while we are weak, God is faithful. And while we are weak, God is sovereign. And while we are weak, God provides. And so that's our sermon in the nutshell for today, that in the midst of temptation, disciples of Christ must acknowledge their weakness, trust God's faithfulness, kneel to God's sovereignty, and take hold of God's provision. So in the midst of temptation, we need to acknowledge our weakness. In the midst of temptation, we need to trust God's faithfulness. In the midst of temptation, we need to kneel to God's sovereignty. And in the midst of temptation, we need to take hold of God's provision. 
Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We are good readers of body language. I'm going to come down here for this. So, right, we, we know this stance, right? If, if, I, if I stand here with my legs straight, my back sort of lengthened and my shoulders back, my chest out, my arms crossed, my head off here, sort of looking in a, in a direction, right, that's a look of pride. I mean, so, come on, you're the smallest person up in the front row. Come over here. How much force does it take to put, all I need you to do is, is make me move my feet. I'm going to look proud here. <laughs> It's not an athletic, it's not an athletic stance, right? You, you wouldn't, there's no strength in this. It looks strong, we think of it as strong, but I, you know, you don't throw a ball from, from this position. You can't take force this way. You can't deliver force with that proud uh, e expression, right? It, it's, it is the look of pride that depends on appearances, you, you might look at a person and think, wow, that's a strong person, but there is no strength there. Imagine me trying to stand that way on a seat of a round-bottom canoe. Right? There, there's no stability in that whatsoever. It has no root, it has no power, it has the appearance of strength, but it doesn't have the strength of God in it. Brothers and sisters, this is the same with all pride. Right? If Paul would write to Timothy, if we are lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to our parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, we may have the appearance of godliness, but we are weak because we are denying God's power. This is a dangerous place to be. Proverbs tells us that one's pride will bring him low. And Jesus had taught everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And Paul now writes, let those who stand proud, who think they, they stand, take heed lest they fall. Instead of standing in our own strength, we can take heart. As we heard from Pastor Josh's sermon last week on Psalm 23, right, while we are weak, he is strong. While God opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. While our faith is weak, he is perfectly faithful. So in the midst of temptation, we can trust in God's faithfulness. Again, temptation will come. It is necessary. And while our sinful tendency in the midst of temptation is to be unfaithful and, and idolatrous, God's character, his very nature is perfect faithfulness. God declares that he is faithful to be trusted and reliable throughout scripture. He says, I am the Lord who is faithful, that his love is faithful, his mercy is faithful, his word is faithful. God acts in faithfulness. He abounds in faithfulness. In short, we can trust him and we can rely upon him. It is this faithfulness about which we sing in the hymn. Right? Our hope is built on nothing less than his faithful sacrifice and his righteousness. That our trust rests on nothing less and nothing more than his faithful strength. That the, in the uncertainty of this world, we can trust in his faithful, unchanging grace. 
in the storms of life, it is his faithfulness to which we are anchored. Any other ground would be sinking sand. You cannot stand on your own strength, even under common temptation. You can't resist common temptations on your own. But God is faithful in this unstable, unstable, unshifting, unfaithful word. God is the solid rock of faithfulness. He keeps in perfect peace those whose minds are stayed on him because they trust in him. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Whereas another hymn based on Lamentations 3 exclaims, Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Praise God for his great faithfulness. And praise God that he is not only faithful in the midst of temptations, but also sovereign and able. Because of that, in the midst of our temptations, having acknowledged our weakness, having having trusted in God's faithfulness, we kneel before God's sovereignty. In the book of James, we read, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Yet while God does not tempt us, we see in verse 13 that he sets limits on that temptation. He, he allows that temptation to happen. From the book of Job, in the Gospel of Matthew, we hear that God controls, limits, and even orders Satan the tempter. And again, from Matthew 18, we know that these temptations are necessary for God's plan to strengthen and grow Christians into Christ-likeness. And this is difficult to hear. The concept known as theodicy, right? How a good, all-knowing, all-powerful God can allow evil to occur in this world is one of the most challenging subjects to address. And apart from one particular fact, we are indeed unable to reconcile the question. Indeed, we would have to conclude, as much as the world has, that this God, if he exists at all, is evil, or at least malevolent, or indifferent, and thus tolerates or even instigates evil. That he's ignorant of evil. That he's impotent to, to do anything about the evil, or maybe a combination of all these factors. But in the gospel, we find that one fact, that missing point to solve this conundrum. It is the God who himself chooses to suffer, even to suffer on a cross, and then calls us to be like him. As Micah Edmondson writes in his book on the theodicy of Martin Luther King Jr., only the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ provides the definitive revelation of redemptive suffering. Only the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ provides the definitive revelation of redemptive suffering. Our God is the God who forms light and creates darkness, who makes well-being and creates calamity. He is the one who looks upon his righteous servant Job and then turns him over to Satan to be tormented. He is the one who sends his own son into the world to be rejected, tortured, crucified. Yet the darkness 
and the calamity he creates, the temptation he allows, the suffering he ordains is not without reason or purpose because with it he conquers death. He overthrows Satan. He grows faith. He strengthens the weak. He chastens the proud. He convicts the wayward to repentance. He sanctifies the saints. He refines our faith, redeems the rejected, and he brings glory to himself and to the church. He is the Lord who does all these things. So while we are weak and impotent, God is strong and omnipotent. He is not in despair because of our weaknesses, but instead his power is made perfect in them. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Praise God that in the midst of our temptation, we can humble ourselves and acknowledge our weaknesses before him who is faithful and sovereign. And praise God that in that faithful sovereignty, he is also the God who provides. So in the midst of temptation, take hold of God's provision. There are some passages and themes in the Bible that may seem familiar even to those who have never been in church. One's the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Another is from the Gospel of Matthew, what some people call the Lord's Prayer, because it's a, a prayer that the Lord taught to his disciples. And others might call the Our Father because of the first words. In that prayer, Jesus taught his disciples to glorify God, to make his name holy, to seek his will, to request forgiveness, pledge forgiveness, and ask for provision for physical needs. Give us this day our daily bread. God takes joy in provision. In one of the pivotal events of the Old Testament, God provides a sacrifice to rescue Isaac from the altar. When he does, Abraham declares that God is the Lord God who provides. Adonai Yira. Literally, the Lord God will see to it. Elsewhere in the Bible, we see how God provides for his people in the midst of great famine, provides a way of escape from Pharaoh, provides food and drink for them in the, in the wilderness, provides sustainment during captivity and upon their return to the land. And of course, God culminates his faithful, sovereign provision by providing himself, sending his son, Jesus Christ, to be God with us, born into human flesh, to minister, teach, suffer, die, and rise again, that we might be provided the ultimate means of escape, not only from temptations, but from the consequences of our sins, not by standing in our own strength, but by grace, through faith, into his provision of forgiveness and his reconciliation to ourselves. And having been reconciled to him, we find another way that God provides. Returning to the Lord's Prayer, Jesus would teach us to pray that God not lead us in temptation, but deliver us from evil. And now Paul, in verse 13, says this prayer will be answered. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to stand or you may be able to endure it. This faithful, sovereign God is the same God who provided the way of escape from, uh, for Isaac from the altar, for Joseph from Potiphar's wife and from the prison, 
for the people of Pharaoh's army, for the people from Pharaoh's armies, the spies from Jericho, David from Saul, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the furnace, Paul and Silas from prison, Paul from shipwreck, and all of us who follow him from eternal death, punishment, and suffering for our sins. This is the faithful, sovereign God who promises that he will provide a way of escape for you under, under temptation. And this is why we, as disciples of Christ in the midst of temptation, acknowledge our weaknesses, trust in his faithfulness, kneel to his sovereignty, and take hold of his provision. Because idols still exist. For the unbeliever, you, you may not see the idols that, that you would think of, right, all, all the time, of, of a gold animal or a person, an ancestor, right, a, a, a god put up on an altar. But if you believe you are righteous or will be righteous because of what you have done or what you have not done, what you've gone through, what you know, what you have made, then whatever that whatever is, is your idol. Just as if you had carved it by hand, clad it in gold, put it on an altar, lit incense before it, and bowed down and worshipped it. It is an idol. If you are seeking anything apart from the one true God, pleasures, pursuits, wealth, power, relationships, education, possessions, health and fitness, status, fame, even peace, then whatever that is, is the idol you worship. And God promises that the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. That ultimately the sin of idolatry, the worshiping of God, that which is not God, will be paid for by your death and eternal punishment and suffering. Do you hear Jesus calling to you, showing you the way of escape, not through your own strength, but through his faithful, sovereign provision? Come to me, he says. All those who are weary, loaded down with the weights and the junk of this world, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Christians, if you have taken that yoke upon you, hear Paul's warning. Do you think you stand? Take heed, lest you fall. Temptations are all around us. Many times these temptations are the ones we think of most readily. And we might think we are doing quite well with those temptations. We might even be so bold to say, the Bible commands, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And we might say to ourselves, consoling ourselves, saying, all these things I have kept since my youth. Just as the rich young ruler stood before Jesus on his own prideful strength and tried to justify himself before the Son of God. How are you doing with the elemental sin of pride, of standing proudly, of sinning the way the Corinthians did, by dividing themselves over issues of those who ate certain food or didn't? So let's have a heart check. Again, when I hold up this mask, what comes into your heart? What, what thoughts go through your minds? What, what feelings, what emotions come in? Perhaps you're a mask wearer. 
Maybe you got really re good reasons for why you have chosen to wear a mask. You've read the studies, you've listened to the experts, you've thought deeply about it, maybe you've prayed a lot about it. Maybe you've come to the conclusion that you are being responsible by wearing one of these. That, that you are demonstrating love to others. That you are helping to keep people aware of the need to be careful. Maybe another reason, and maybe many reasons. And maybe you're not a mask wearer. And again, maybe you have very good reasons for why you don't wear one. You've read the studies. You've listened to experts. You've thought deeply. Maybe you've prayed deeply about whether and where you should wear one of these. And you've come to the conclusion that you are being responsible by not wearing one. That you're demonstrating love. That you're helping people be aware of the need not to be afraid. And maybe another reason, and maybe more than one reason. And when you have a discussion with a person who not only practices differently than you, but thinks you ought to practice the same way that they are practicing, what goes through your heart? What are your thoughts? What are your reactions? What are your words? Do you find yourself standing in your own righteousness? You speak truth and love, considering or even debating this admittedly important issue without judging the thoughts and motivations of that person? Or do you seek to puff yourself up with your knowledge? Would you let this get between you and a believer? Whether you wear this or you don't, would you let this break your fellowship with your fellow believer? No. No. If you do, you are not doing all for the glory of God. You are holding up an idol instead. Here how Paul concludes this chapter, starting at verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. And if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, for the sake of conscience, I don't mean your conscience, but his for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Let's pray. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who despite our weaknesses to temptation, are the faithful, sovereign, 
provider. Please lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Please join us as we